Shalom, weirdos and witches. It is I, Keats Ross, the host of the Prague Magic Podcast, a podcast trying to discover the confluence between the creative process and metaphysics. As you may have known if you follow me on Twitter or on YouTube, this episode has already premiered. However, it premiered during a birthday live stream on YouTube sandwiched between an off-the-cuff introduction, a pre-recorded introduction, and questions being answered via the live chat at the end. So I wanted to give this episode its very own special audio version, which you're listening to now. I recommend checking out the live stream while you're there. Please follow Pragmagic on YouTube. The video should be encased in the show notes below. Also, you'll get my off-the-cuff remarks post that initial conversation here with Thomas Sheridan. Thomas Sheridan was such a gentleman, truly a brilliant, enigmatic figure. I'm really excited. I got to dig deep with him about the psychological and philosophical ramifications of hexing, eight circuit bending audiomancy weirdness and high strangeness when it comes to electromagnetic and analog magic, And uh, my favorite part was the deep discussion about mental health. It was good hearing him clarify some of his more incendiary statements uh, that he's had on Facebook. And I'm really happy we got to dig in as a kind of one-on-one with someone who struggles with it personally and someone who's been affected by someone struggling with it negatively. If you are already a patron on patreon.com slash pragmagic, you already know all this stuff. You already heard the full unedited chat, and I've got more stuff coming for you for just $1 a month. Subscribe to the YouTube. Please subscribe, like, share, wherever. I hate saying that, but hey, how else are we going to haunt on? And what do we do? Well, the only way to survive long after we're dead is to haunt on. Thomas Sheridan, I'm very excited to speak with you. I know we've been trying to do this for quite some time, so thank you for taking the time out. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. No, thank you for asking. You know, one of the major things, just to jump into it, I think the crux of why I wanted to speak with you is about hexing. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, too, uh, in my, um, I don't know, in my purveyance of the quote-unquote great work, you've come across it uh, a bunch. And uh, something that's always been kind of, weird for me is the psychological ramifications of hexing somebody and i thought maybe you could speak a little bit about that well i don't like it for lots of reasons i think that firstly it distracts from you developing yourself spiritually by connecting yourself to an exterior force rather than trying to i don't know develop a kind of a, a sense of samadhi or a kind of sense of self-awareness a, a hex is almost like an act of violence right. i mean the last the last thing you should really do i'm not saying there's any you shouldn't do it i mean i mean it's like a, it's like someone comes to punch you maybe sometimes punching them back is okay but there's also other aspects to you know there's almost like a quantum a, com- a quantum entanglement element to it you're sort of permanently connected to that individual or family or whatever. When you've done it, you've actually created an energetic link that's pretty 
intense. And if it was done under a state of hatred or vindictiveness or, you know, that kind of real, your, your nervous system has been charged up that much. Well, that's going to be a very difficult thing to undo. Now, I have a very, a very old book on Scottish curses and hexing. And the advice it gives at the end, it gives lots of examples of why you shouldn't do it, but not from like a Christian viewpoint or anything. It's actually quite, you know, quite prosaic in how it talks about it. But it says that, and I thought it was a fantastic point. This book was like written in the 20s or something. They said, if you hex somebody during a height of hatred or vengeance or anything like that, well, that state will eventually go in you. You'll eventually forget about it. And then you may have lost that hatred, lost that, that dark negative energy you had towards the other person. But meanwhile, the other person is still having to live with the hex that you placed upon them. Right. And within Scottish, I mean, although I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not specifically in one school as such, I'm fascinated by folk magic. And I think folk magic does stand the test of time because it's been a gigantic laboratory that's run for thousands of years mm-hmm. all over the world. And the, the, uh, the person who wrote the book, the author said that excuse me, I just coughed. The person who wrote the book, I'm fine, yeah, I'm back. The person who wrote the book said that it had been shown that it does pass from generation to generation. And so it's like imprinted in like a genetic code almost. Yeah, or the maybe the nervous system. We don't really fully understand what consciousness is even, you know, so it's it maybe something along those lines. Right. In terms of how consciousness is passed on genetically even. I mean, I, there's aspects of that to it, which there probably is, I'm sure, at some level. And why should children and ancestors be punished for crimes that someone had done in the past? Yeah. And I think that's a, a very a very good argument. And even if it's not true, and I, I mean, I know, a lot, I speak to a lot of occultists and some say, oh, that's true in some cases. But they said, if, if, you're, if you calm yourself down and hex them, like months later, it won't happen. But if you hex them in the moment of sheer hatred and vengeance, it will. So there's different schools of thought on it. But there's a genuine, a genuine assumption that it can happen. And it, that, that's probably one of the ethical reasons not to do it. I think, you know, big, big thing for me is, yeah, like I was mentioning, the psychological ramifications of baneful magic, that someone carrying around that much hatred and them thinking that they can affect negatively the, you know, uh, trajectory of somebody else is kind of a scary place to be in. Yeah, there's also the element of, I mean, guilt, genuine guilt. I mean, when you're younger, you're generally you're full of piss and vinegar and you oh, might yeah. get it. You might get into fights. You might do things. You should get that. And when you grow older later on, you handle being insulted or being treated disrespectfully much better because you have life experience. Now, you could be like in your early 20s and full of hormones and full of rage and testosterone. And if someone does this to you and you hex them, and uh, then you find that later on they're all the children were killed in a car crash or something, are you going to be able to deal with that? Right. You know, and this, so this, this, is, this is the whole thing of magic. It's really about building the, 
the the self the, the self identity and the consciousness in a, in a, a level towards a genuine spiritual enlightenment. It's just like martial arts or anything else that way. Sure. When to punch and when not to punch. Yeah, well, it's a good yeah, it's a good idea to think about uh, when it comes to you know, uh, the severity of where you're at in your life and wanting to imprint that on somebody else. But to me, it's always been, you know, magic. And you've said this too, it's a very solitary thing. And yeah. I think it's more about, you know, embedding the self rather than kind of harking on another individual. And the solitary thing and the private thing is extremely important. Like no great artist stood there and created a masterpiece by talking about it as you were doing it. Right. <laughs> you know, so this Bob Ross this Bob Ross approach to magic is filled with flaws. You're giving away right away. You know, you're immediately as you're describing, I'm going to hex this person online or something. Uh, you have that thing with the whole Trump thing. Yeah. And then, which and I then a, a, uni a, a universal constant leading into that, segueing into that, is that I hear everywhere I go when I'm in Italy or Sri Lanka or anywhere, mm -hmm. that if you hex someone who didn't harm you personally, I mean, with intent, I mean, you could harm somebody and not genuinely want to hurt them. It could be out of things like a broken heart. It could be out of things like uh, immaturity or stupid situation or, or they're a member of some political group or something like that you don't like. But that was not the same thing as personal intent to harm. And that's the danger that that thing will come flying back with you, especially if the person that you're hexing, regardless if they're into magic or anything, has a powerful psychic integration. And it will just, right. where that, energy, that energy has to go somewhere and it's going to come home. And I, that's a universal constant I've heard everywhere. Yeah, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the, uh, was it the Michael, I forget his last name, but the, uh, you know, the whole Trump hexing yeah. thing, which I think, I mean, maybe arguably, but I think it's pretty clear that that backfired pretty <laughs> severely in a way one of the guys who was behind it a guy a young guy on was on tv i saw him on cnn he now has a gofundme page uh, he's lost everything and he's practically living on the streets the lesson there you know i've yeah. heard stories of people i had a friend in england who told me he knew a woman who was like this old elderly hippie lady now you could read it this any way you want very whipped up in the sort of that that stuff and she literally took, she got involved in the first uh, public binding one. And she suddenly got cancer and died a few weeks later of a very right. bad, you know, maybe it's not related, but you still have to wonder. Yeah, it's hard not to be a conductor of coincidence with these things, you know. Yeah. And, and again, you know, people say, oh, well, his policies affect me. Well, unless he ordered a direct attack on you and wounds you love directly by name, intent personally, not really. You're choosing to be offended by that. It's not the same as Dion Fortune or, or and her, fortune, yeah. on her society. Well, Dion Warwick was great too. <laughs> but, uh, our society of light uh, standing on the great cliffs of Dover trying to turn back the German bombers because those bombs were, were potentially landing on her community. Right. And so it was very, very different. Was it famously uh, the guy that, you know, the Wiccan? Uh, uh, Gardner? Uh, yeah. yeah, he was there. Yeah, he, he was part of that, right? He was about Yeah, and two other that. people, and they both died. And, they, and Gardner's contention was that they died because it was so much intensity put into it. A very interesting guy, Gardner. Yeah. But World War II was a very, there was a lot of occultic stuff, mainly on the Third Reich side, but it was everywhere. I mean, yeah. war, war does bring that out. 
Yeah, and you mentioned too, and I, I think it's a sobering comment you had said recently where, you know, we will always be in the thralls of some of wartime. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like a never-ending. I mean, maybe some people would look at that cynically, but I think that's just a sobering realization as the human condition for, well, you know, you know, bad trajectories in, to power, you know? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Ireland where in one, the northern half of this island, people were killing each other because of sectarian violence. Right. And that's all stopped now. The sectarianism is still there. It may be under the surface. It may be a bit more polite. But that is never, that never fully goes. It's also one of the reasons I was, you know, became very anti-Christian. But, you know, that's, you know there's, there's, those things don't vanish overnight. You don't anywhere. You see, like, the America living with the legacies of things like slavery and things like that. You can, it can, it's frightening how quickly it can change. Now, as regards war always being there, well, you could take a philosophical thing to it that war is an intrinsic part of human nature, that we've always been tribalistic and we always fight. I don't know if that's completely true. I'd be more under the, the concept of, the universe requires novelty and evolution. And if your life is easy going, it will generate conflicting energetic forces in order for you to deal with them and grow as a person huh. and a society and a, and, a, and a culture. So I think there's, we're, we're playing our cosmic roles here. I think this is why in terms of magic, that the thing in terms of military and war is always rooted in that is because it, it does definitely make, people think differently in a different way like i was in liverpool last year in england and they had in the shipyard there a preserved dazzle ship now what dazzle ships were they used to think they were battleships that the royal navy used and they used to paint them in bizarre colors like pink geometric shapes and just all kinds of strange geometric shapes and colors and send them out into the german fleet and what they discovered was that they were so strange to look at that they couldn't hit them. They couldn't hit them as easy. They couldn't get their. They couldn't bear on them. They were literally. That's what they called razzle dazzle ships. Right. And that yeah. made and that made me think. Like what? Looking at this thing, I was sitting in the shipyard there, looking at this thing, and I was thinking to myself, that would have never been developed if it wasn't for war. And then you then go on from that to things like the psychedelic thing. And they are looking at a psychedelic battleship from 1914. And where did that come from? It came from war. And right. you find that probably a lot of a magical practice, like in, in countries where there's been a lot of history of warfare and stuff, they often have the deepest magical tradition. Yeah, theatricality, I feel, has always been a part of that. It's, a, it's yeah. that, yeah, like you said, razzle-dazzle. I mean, there's no one more equipped with it than the Third Reich, obviously, with, you know, the super villain oeuvre that they had. Um, but yeah, it always it always seemed it always seemed to me that there was uh, like an identitarian thing when it comes to uh, scaring the other side with the unknown. I yeah, identitarian. That's a great way to put it. I there's a there was even during the troubles in Northern Ireland when I was growing up, there was the, the British Army were doing things like leaving. There's a very good book about it called The Magical War of something like that in a bolster or something where the British military were deliberately going into IRA areas and setting up what looked like ritual magic practices happened in abandoned buildings and houses huh. in the belief that snipers wouldn't go into them. 
and uh, I don't know if it worked or not, but they were they were there was there were being there were so many being killed by IRA snipers who would be darting into old buildings and factories and taking them out that someone had the idea that maybe we'll pretend they're being used for black magic, and it will. The, the sniper goes in there, sees the remnants of a black magic altar. You know, it's totally, totally fake, by the way. Right. But it's not, it's not, but it's not fake if it works. You know what I'm saying? This is the thing about magic. It's like, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's, and the intention may be fake, but if the guy walked in there and go, I'm getting out of here, I'm not going, I'm, you know, I, this, could, this could backfire on me. I could get killed myself. Yeah. Uh, well, it worked. It, it, the magic worked. You know, it worked. Absolutely. But and like, even to circle back to what we were talking about, like it, the hexing needs to be personal. You know, I yeah. think there's something to be said with the, you know, history standing the test of time that, yeah, even though the Third Reich, you know, admired themselves and runic and, you know, all these like. Uh, Bang on. Yep. You're so right. They were, they were, they were doing cosplay on a gigantic level. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, it backfired magnificently because I don't think people at that time understood exactly what was going on but maybe if they were a little bit more upfront about it it could have scared a little more i don't know the resurgent germanic paganism was enough to unleash certain forces that had been buried beneath things like lutherism and other religions right. that they were able to unleash an, an ancient charge but they weren't able to take it as far as it could now at the same time the, there was a british magician by the name of masculine he was a very famous magician in the 1930s and 40s, stage magician, not occult. Well, it's the same thing when you when you get the same result in the end. Yeah, I like. But yeah. he what he he did some remarkable things. He based he moved the city of Alexandria in Egypt. He what they were the Germans were bombing Alexandria, and what he did was he <laughs> he went down the coast to a bay 20 miles away that looked very similar, and got the British military to set up light trucks. And to simulate the harbor at Alexandria, 20 miles from where the real Alexandria was, and then got everyone to shut off the lights in Alexandria, and they bombed an empty bay. Things like that, which is a slight right. of hand thing. But the result is they, st he, they, st he still you know, enchanted the, the German bomber pilots. It's still yeah, magic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, what was, uh, I think Jason Louv had said something about the difference between that. Is One is, you know... Uh, enamoring yourself in illusion the other one is dispelling it that's very good yeah i'd agree with that yeah um but yeah to talk about more about like i think maybe we've hit kind of a uh you know mass effect of a culture these days i don't know if you'd agree with that but it seems to be everything from the atlantic writing these articles which really just kind of dispel um witchcraft and by adding all this woo to kind of dispel the actual spiritual practice of it. Um, so we, we've just hit like a, a, what do you call it? Mass, you know, we've hit the limit. It seems like, and it seems like uh, when it comes and like hexing is a part of that pedaling. I've noticed everyone from EA co-wedding on YouTube um, and like these, these fights between people like David Griffin, who's, who's now the, you know, the arbiter of the golden dawn, which is arguable. And, uh, you know, EA quitting going against each other about what, you know, how to, how to attain power from individuals. And I just thought that was, it's really funny how it always comes down to money or ascension and money in ascension. Which is not necessarily anything wrong with that, you know, if you want to make a living. But in terms of ego battles, it's, it's, it, it, it reflects very badly on magic as a whole. 
Yeah. I, you know, you see, like most magicians, you don't make a lot of money. Most people involved in the, the deep end of magical practice, they generally, you know, they're artists. Austin's, yeah, they're artists. So they exactly like, uh, you know, people say, well, like, you know, uh, you know, Austin, Austin's, Austin's bear and Crowley didn't die with any great riches, but their riches were the fantastic life that they lived. Absolutely. And the incredible experiences and this, you know, and if what's his name, Jack Parsons had had not been murdered, who knows what he would have went on to do. But yeah, I mean that, that it's it's not really about that. I mean, it, a lot of people who tend to be wealthy and be occultists are generally already have the money already, and then they you know they've they've been they've made it some other way, and then they yeah. get into it. And so it's not like for that. It's it's again it's a spiritual thing. You know, you don't become a monk, you know, a Shaolin monk to get rich. Now, there's a lot of this this nonsense about this. We've gone into the kind of real end pop culture end of things. You're all right, right. You're right about that. Yeah. It's like the Harry Potter generation come of age. <laughs> and the, the the Atlantic article wasn't the worst of them. And it's also happening with paganism. Have you noticed that? They're also... Oh, yeah. The, the two things are... And that's, you know, that's me. But the two things go hand in hand. The new sort of American paganism, Druidism and whatever. And a lot of it seems to be an American phenomena as a whole. And uh, then the, the the magic thing, and you know, I mean, they have some people who are. I mean, it was literally. I'm not kidding you. It was literally within a two week period that YouTube was filled with interviews on mainstream TV programs from England, Australia, loads from the USA, with like fashionable witches yes. who were suddenly being fe- fe- featured in magazines like Con Nast and Vogue and everything. It was almost like somebody. Uh, flick the switch and says, "Let's put witches all out there and let's." It was like a musical genre that came, you know, to be the boy bands. It was like boy bands. It didn't really take off, though. Did you notice that? Yeah, I've seen it fizzle out for sure. There was one lady in Vogue that they were like really setting up big time, and I mean, she was being filmed very professionally, and they were. I mean, they were trying to launch launch her almost like as the Deepak Chopra of this stuff or something like that. It, le- it literally went nowhere, which shows you there's no magic there anyway. Right. Or there's there's no honesty. You're like if you, if you don't have an honest intent, if you don't really believe in it, it won't happen anyway. It'll always be cosplay. But I just found it fascinating that they ran it in tandem with the whole pagan revival thing. It's a, I can tell you what there, there there's an element of you know we can look at the you know I'm I, you know I'm I wouldn't call myself a conspiracy theorist, but I I know enough about the world to know that there are people out there who'll try anything to stay in power or get power. Right. And I I do believe that there was a, whether it was churches, whether, you know, you you probably would trace this stuff back and find out that it was someone like Benny Hinn or some of these guys who run these super churches in America (laughs) who were probably a little worried about uh, their, 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 their money drying up, but all this growth in paganism and magic and probably hard PR firms doing then fake magicians or whatever. That's the kind of, if it was a conspiracy, it'd be something like that. And it wouldn't be like the Illuminati sitting down and planning to take us over or something. It wouldn't be like that at all. It'd be, it'd be some tacky business, ego driven thing. But yeah, it, I think that what that did happen and I'd love to know who was behind it. And I, I found it very interesting, but it, it fizzled out, but there was definitely an agenda. Like, it's, and I see it here in Ireland as well. There's, there's definitely, uh, paganism is now very, very strong again in Ireland. Yeah. And it never really went away, but it's officially strong now. And like everyone's a pagan. Like lots of people call themselves pagans. Or if you ask them, even people who said like a few years ago would have said, I'm an atheist. They might, they'll say around, I'm kind of interested in paganism. You right. hear that a lot now here. And, uh, and a lot of, have, I think a lot of that dovetailed into the environmental thing as well. Well, that kind of thing going on also. 
But there's some funny things happening here in Ireland. There's like wars between Druids and Wiccans and stuff like that, the Hill of Tara. And they're all suing each other. And it's been going on in England. I heard of some unbelievable stories about the Druids at Avebury. They've been doing things like throwing dead chickens on each other's doorsteps and stuff. It's really silly. Jesus. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really, really, really. It's all these cosplay Druids. And yeah. uh, it's, uh, but it is interesting how but it's, it's, it's out there and it's popular like yeah yeah you know and you see like you go around villages in ireland where they where kids paint a mural on the wall and it's a pagan goddess almost nearly always now or something like that mm-hmm. you know and so it's definitely mainstream so are the churches or the vatican or somebody paying pr firms to muddy the waters i don't know yeah i mean that's a good point it seems like uh because like like i said with all these articles it seems like they try to devalue the the spiritual craft with adding in all the you know the the deepest of woo with it and it's that's not indicative of like really what's going on yeah mad, uh, like fashionista type things right and it is i mean i i hate to say it but there is a uniform you know and i see this in a lot of different um sects of occultism oh big time you yeah. know and and that's just what it is and i don't want to harp on it too much because you know as you know being a musician and uh my background in music it is very genre based in a way and it's not the worst thing in the world i mean i do know i do know people who do dress up and do have the image that have great magical power right but they're rare they're very rare and they were doing it for years they'd be in their 60s or 60s now you know that kind of thing right like a french woman i know that taught me the tarot when i was a kid she's like in her she's must be in there well into her 70s now and she does the whole dressed up the whole thing and she's still going strong and yeah and that she was there before anyone else and then but the vast majority of competent occultists i know and pagans are you wouldn't know them from anyone else walking down the street well yeah and that's a good point too i do believe there's power in uh image and i think a lot of it too within ceremonial magic that's a lot of it is the theatricality but I also think as an artist, it's important to represent yourself at all times. And I think as small things like even fashion could be it, you know. But to me, I don't know. I And like I probably exhaustively have a kind of a punk rock attitude with it where if I see a uniform, I scoff, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tend to be like that for the most part. But I also understand that, you know, a charge can be released in lots of ways. I mean, let's talk about music. You could have like this, you know, you could have a punk band where four fellas are bashing it out on, or four fellas and few girls are bashing it out on the stage, incredibly intense in a small club. You'll get a great charge from that. You'll get a great charge from some like big heavy metal band with a a huge stage show, but you'll also get it from minimalist kind of electronic bands like Kraftwerk and stuff. You know, there's there's different ways to it. Yeah, and I, I do want to say that I, I understand how exhaustible it is. It's almost like an immature thing I'm still dealing with from when I was an angry kid. Yeah, you'll, know, never, grow I, you'll never grow out of it. I still have it. <laughs> <laughs> but I do see the power and like uh, standing on the shoulders of like the ancestral kind of parts of what all of that image means, you know. But the dress up thing, I'm glad you brought this up. When I was 14 or I was 13, actually. My friend and I, Tommy Farrell, went into Central Dublin and we were in a record shop and we were just at the age we were starting to get into proper music. We went from like Crazy Horses by the Osmond to things like nice. Slade and 
uh, oh, Bowie yeah. and T-Rex, big time T-Rex fans. Yeah. And there was, a, there was a fanzine. There was a fanzine, right? And this is probably one of the most magical books I've ever read in my life. That have been brought. This guy used to. This guy called Fred Jaffe used to bring all the records and stuff over from London, and he brought our fanzines from somewhere, some some shop in England. This had been about seventy-eight or something, seventy-seven, seventy-eight, and the fanzine was about punks, and we never heard of them, knew nothing about them. And they had like photocopied black and white pictures of like Susie Sue and people like that. Right. And we were captivated. We were captivated by the way they dressed up and the way they looked. So even the punk rock in the early days was very much based on glamoury. Very yes. much. Very much. Yes, absolutely. And I do think, yeah, like uh, I absolutely attribute to even my my practice as being kind of of the same ethos, you know, of uh, uh, very, like, arguably, maybe stubbornly individualistic. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, Mitch Horowitz talks about it. I think it's, he calls it archaic magic, which I've always loved. I mean, I think everyone should name their own magic, you know, so I don't necessarily think that, you know, that's necessarily what I practice, but I do love that it's a potpourri of recipes that are all mixed together, you know, to kind of create a, a personal trajectory within this. Yeah, joining groups, I, I get invited now and again to join groups and stuff like that. It's like, it seems too much like the army or something. Right. There's like <laughs> the rule books and everything, yeah. even if they're not like that. And even if, I mean, I'll politely might go along and might meet people and stuff like that. And that's, it's very nice and everything. But ultimately it comes down to a statute of rule books or something. And that's just not for me. Yeah, and I've fallen into it too. I was, uh, I still do. Am a part of a an art collective, and that dabbles a lot in metaphysics. It's really about the confluence between art and metaphysics. And the whole thing was, you know, holding up disparate individualistic artists with like a kind, uh, a pretty aloof ethos, like one that's supposed to be malleable, supposed to be changed all the time. But even then, even then, you fall into it looking like some kind of religious doctrine you know i have a friend in dublin uh she's a journalist there and she joined the golden dawn there and then the golden dawn there is goes right back to the beginning you I mean it's just it's the same age as the london branch and uh, yeah you, it's not like the david griffin stuff no this is they have a real temple and they have to you know you're talking about they have books there by you know they have william butler yates and a e. russell and uh Bram wow. Stoker. That's that's the level, Lady Wilde. That's the level that it's at, and it's very difficult to get in. And she said she was absolutely captivated by the the glamoury and the pageantry and dressing. She she just felt amazing dressed up like Cleopatra and all this kind of thing they do. But then she said after a while it was just like being in college or school. It was just homework, homework, homework. <laughs> and the initial the initial. Ex- that initial wow factor of being amongst all this soon dissipated and it became yeah. studious and scholarly. Yeah. You, uh, so it, I've heard you mention quite a bit about, uh, you know, groups and orders and kind of, you know, that being, uh, antithetical really to like a, a, a true magical practice, which is really just a trajectory of the self. And it's, uh, you know, I've, I've fallen victim. There's, there's something about, as you know, being in a band and hitting those kind of transcendental states collectively creating and, and doing something like really casting some true, you know, art. And 
every time I've tried to kind of transpose that into maybe doing something with uh, magical means, it's always just burned and crashed. It's it's like a weird pomp and circumstance of of it that I think makes people attuned to something else when really it's just, you know, we're just trying to create art. Yeah, that's exactly it. We're just trying to create art. Also, magical orders come from a time when there was safety in numbers. You know, in the 1800s even, there was still the, like the Protestant and Catholic churches still had a lot of power. And you could go to prison for blasphemy laws and stuff like that. But if you joined a magical order that was filled with like wealthy, influential people, you were safe. You could practice magic in safety. There wasn't as many books around. The, you know, there was still sort of a racial memories among the working classes of their, their ancestors have been like persecuted, gone to prison, or even executed for practicing magic. Right. We don't live like that anymore. We don't need that safety and numbers thing. So you don't need to have an influential friend who's in, who runs a magical order. You can do it at home. Do you think adversity is like a, a needed uh, symptom of a magical practice? I think it's vital in life as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I, when I was successful in business and working, I was the most useless human being in the world. I look <laughs> back on those. I look back on those times uh, saddened. I didn't progress in any way. When I was poor, broke and had nothing, I was a dynamo. Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? I mean, we, yeah. we always hear that. Me too. Um, same think, with yeah. societies. Same with societies. You compare like the, the early America to sort of like McCarthy's America when after World right. War II when everything was comfortable. You compare that to like the nuclear family. America. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 you know, it's like I have a friend here in Ireland who always says that uh, uh, com you know comfort does not great make good art. Right, and it like at what a cost for that comfort a terrible yeah. cost you know but i often wondered that um this actually kind of ties in a little bit to my questions about your thoughts on um depression on mental health i know this that you've had some like incendiary posts in the back uh back in the day um on facebook but uh, uh yeah i would just like to hear what your idea of like mental health is in this day and age yeah they weren't incendiary they were honest opinions yeah, you know, it's just that I don't, I don't lie to people. That's I don't do that, and uh, I mean, I'm not a church. I'm not a Christian who does the softy softy thing. I'm not here to. If I have a, like a, a, what? Okay, mental health and depression, terrible thing. I have tremendous, tremendous uh, sympathy for people going through it. Okay. I, what I, you know, I do, and absolutely I do. I've never had it myself, so I can't say what it's like. On the other side, I have a lot of sympathy for the people who live with these that deal with it and no one seems to care. And I've seen good people being eaten alive by whatever made the partner, the, the, the partner who was depressed, depressed, whether it was some kind of force within them, but I've seen it. And I've seen people who should have walked away from a miserable existence and enabling a person who didn't particularly love them, I might add, it wasn't like they were a great loving person. There was almost like a guilt to walk away. And I feel that sometimes, in some cases, the enabler is actually maintaining that person in a depressed state by being, quote unquote, their rock. 
So this is no. a tough love kind of thing. Well, it wouldn't be a tough love thing. I'll tell you for something. I grew up in a very poor, disadvantaged neighborhood. Extremely yeah, poor, extremely disadvantaged. Guess what? I met fuck all depressed people. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, it, it, there's the, I don't know who said it, whether it was Dylan Thomas or Brendan Bean, but he said it's a middle-class disease. There's a lot of truth to that. Now, what's the underlying cause of that? What brings it to that? There's a sense of idleness. There's, now, I'm not saying deliberate idleness, but there's an idleness of experience and an idleness of, uh, of volatility within the self. Uh, I don't feel, unless you have a child, that you have to necessarily be... Now, if you're married to someone or you're in a relationship with someone and they develop a mental health problem, you must be there for them. You must protect them and look after them. But when I see people willingly entering into relationships with someone who's a manic depressive or something like that, and then three years later, he or she looks like the, the, the absolute living life has been just drained the fuck out of them, mm. and it's not getting any better, and the, the person is even more depressed, I'm, my attitude is, well, you're like a junkie. It's time to get out of that, try to get away from that. Well, and that's how I, I feel about it. I've seen, I've, seen, I've seen numerous cases of it in my life. Yeah. I, it's a, my attitude towards it is, I wouldn't let a person with typhoid cough on me. Does that mean I think a person with typhoid is inferior? No. Do I think they're out to harm me? No. Do I think that they are, should not be given compassion and decency and love? No. But at the same time, too, they should be isolated and help them get better and, others get, and to stop it from spreading to others. And I do feel that the same sense applies to these issues. Now, to me, the, the word mental health is now far too broad. Far right. too broad. To me, a mentally ill person when I was growing up was somebody who was walking down the street having a conversation at the top of their voice, shouting at themselves, probably with their, their zipper open and their willy hanging out. Okay, something like that, right? <laughs> or yeah. nowadays, a person who's extremely mentally ill is someone who's sitting at home feeling sorry for themselves. It seems to be that things like because of the the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic Rule Book and stuff, they have expanded all these mental health things into an enormous spectrum where basically everyone is nuts at some level. Now we also live in an age where we have a victim complex that we live, you know, this is what we live in the age of the victim complex. So everyone now has, I'm this, I'm that, I'm that, I'm that, I'm this, this. No, you're a fucking human being. You have things in you that need work, but at the same time too, the whole world shouldn't stop. This is why it's a path of self-awareness. It shouldn't be, you know, I, I, it shouldn't be that. So, I, yeah, totally, total compassion for me. You can, you can take it any way you want. But I've seen enough good people destroyed in relationships with people who are depressed to know that they were just like being in a relationship to someone that might be HIV positive. Detach. Somehow, don't live with them. You can still love them. Detach. And that's all yeah. I'm saying. I see what you're saying. And uh, as full disclosure, as someone that has struggled in the past with, you know, misdiagnoses and severe mental health and addiction, um, I've found personally in my own thing, even like through the practice of magic, which got me out, um, not uh, being, not subscribing to medication, not subscribing yeah, to very important. Yeah. Uh, any of that to be where I, I honestly sometimes think that I wasn't truly what they diagnosed me as. Cause I'm no, they, fine. You probably, I'm you fine probably weren't. <laughs> but you, yeah. You've yeah. probably got, you've got, like, we've all got through bad stages in life. Right. I mean, honestly, I can, I can harken back to my, and like, honestly, through the study of magic and out, uh, talking to 
you know, uh, you know, luminaries and occultists and artists through this podcast, I found a common thread in that it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a lack of purpose. It's a, it's a, what ate me alive was this kind of like amiable, um, like drugs gave me a clarity of purpose or, you know, mental health was the reason for everything that gave me a clarity of purpose. But I, I don't think it was true. You know, it wasn't yeah. right and it wasn't good. Um, and honestly, yeah, I've been a couple of years now of not dealing with any of that. I feel fine. <laughs> a lot of that is through personal growth and personal, you know, praxis mm-hmm. and all of that. But yeah, I do see what you're saying because, you know, a lot of in the addiction community, it's an enabler thing. And they say, yeah, and depression is an element, there's an element of addiction to that as well. Right. If, you know, and I'll give you another one. I, I, I mean, you can, you can, I have no problem saying that many people I know who suffer from depression can often be some of the most selfish people I've ever met. They don't care about anyone but themselves, even if they're destroying their family around them. Now, you could say, oh, it's because the, the, the illness makes them that way. But I, I don't know. It's like, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's like these people that talk about it nonstop for years and years on. About the illness. Are they really serious or are they looking for sympathy? Are they looking for enablers? You know, mm-hmm. I know, yeah, all, I, I mean, I have a, a tremendous respect for anyone who can live and stay with someone like that. But at the same time, too, um, you know, to me, the whole mental health thing is just, like I said, you're misdiagnosed wrong. What, what is mental health? There is no baseline for sanity in this world. Are we medicating our greatest artists away by giving them diagnostic uh, tools and saying, oh, you've got ZYZXYP, here's right. a medication. Are we losing our shaman? Are we losing our artists? It, it, is, it, could your depression be a method to have you go into a solitary lifestyle like the Hermit card in the tarot? Yeah. So instead of looking for fucking enablers, you're actually going to be, go on a mystical journey. And I've heard that from some people who have recovered and come out the other side, big time. Like where are, you know, would you rather be, you know, miserable waiting for someone to enable you? Or would you rather be a, a, you know, what was his name? The guy who wrote Jerusalem, the famous English poet. Alan Moore? Oh, no. No, from the 1800s. uh, Would you rather be, yeah. yeah, you know, would you rather be that and then, and then triumph? You know, but back right. to the old thing, the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung, the monomyth. Of course, yes, yes. You yes, know, yes. it's it, yeah. not a more wordy thing than looking around waiting for, I need, I need a rock, I need someone to be my rock. You know, a lot, too much that goes on. I've been diagnosed as A, it's X, Y, Z, Z, P, P, A. Oh, stop it. Yeah. You know, stop it. I know well, personally, I, I, I agree personally because I don't, uh, I don't blame my, you know, quote unquote psychosis during that time on anything but just you know my own yeah i was the guy i was that guy that was holding relationship after relationship that was unhealthy that was uh self-serving that was you know it was bullshit and I, I take full responsibility of that i think that's you know a major point of you know my quote-unquote recovery um yeah. then again i don't uh subscribe to any kind of recovering practice i don't subscribe to it's it's all things that you know were unearthed after a purpose was kind of given to me or or not given to me a purpose I found or wedged out you know, um, and I think these are kind of ultimate truths. These are uh, this kind of like salient need to 
be responsible for your life in a way. Exactly. I, I mean, I've, I've done things in my life I shouldn't have done, but that's it. I mean, I can't take them back. I can modify my behavior going forward, but uh, I haven't done anything horrific or anything like that. But, right. uh, I, you know, I've been an asshole like anyone else has been at certain times in my life and things like that. But, uh, you know, that's, I've been a decent person a million times more. And I'm not going to, then I started to realize I was judging myself maybe by one or two things I did. When in reality, you know, it's probably the same thing with the mental illness thing. It, people are told to concentrate constantly on your depression or on this or that or the other. Now, you said you were psych, you, you had psychosis. That's a whole other thing altogether. That's, well, I think, yeah, that's, maybe I'm, I'm that's, a, that's, a, that's a real, that's a, that's a real health issue that you should have got help for. I would, sure yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I say that maybe because I, I too am using it more than it should be used um yeah but there was you know there was a time in my life, very dark period where uh anger kind of entrenched me and i had a very severe mercurial you know devi deviations and and uh yeah it was uh i i looked towards kind of a purposeless of existence within that as yeah. uh, a cynical kind of way you know yeah um, which is actually can be very healthy too right I mean, it's, it's made me a better person. Obviously I don't, I do regret, it'd be stupid to say I don't regret anything I've done, but, um, well, well if, you don't regret any, if you don't regret anything, if you regret anything <laughs> you've done, you've had a pretty shit life, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, funny enough, arguably I would say I was more of an asshole. I was more of a self-serving dick when I was medicated. Isn't that interesting? It's almost, yeah, it, 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 you wonder about other elements there, like consciousness shifting and things like that, or right. possible entities. But like, I, 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 I will never retract those comments. I totally stand by them. And they don't come from a place of hate or judgment. They come from a place of like compassion for people who've been damaged by contact with them. And that's really all it is. And I'm not saying that yeah. people you deserve to die or anything like that. It's just that you don't, you can't, look, I'm, I'm a chronic asthmatic. I don't expect people to come running with me. So it's the same thing. It's, I don't, I, when I'm walking, sometimes I need to catch a breath. I will say to people, go ahead and walk. I'll meet you up later on. That's okay. That's not, that's me. I, yeah. I wouldn't expect, you must all stop here now because I'm asthmatic. You know, that's, that's, that's the thing, you know, that's, that's where, that's my, that was my point is like, there's a selfishness sometimes. Like this one woman who had my Facebook account shut down recently, and she's been going on internet for years about her mental health issues. She is probably the most self-absorbed, narcissistic individual I've ever known in my life. She is completely wrapped up in herself, totally and 100%. And uh, when she's not a, some kind of new age goddess. And so it's like that, that, that would be the kind of person I'm talking about, you know, you know, instead of trying to externalize or project your your problems onto others, how about, you know, taking responsibility for yourself? And that's all I said. And I will never retract those comments. Yeah. If some people find them incendiary, tough shit. Well, I, I appreciate you clarifying that. But it reminds yeah. me of another thing to talk about is the deification of people and how maybe unhealthy that is. You know, the deification of... Uh, just, you know, whether it be celebrities or, or uh, internet personalities or it, putting people, making people affect you in supernatural ways without them knowing or attempting or understanding seems to be extremely unhealthy.
Oh, yeah. Well, the funny thing is, I never really had that. Now, like, I was a, an enormous Bowie fan. Right. An enormous, you know, like, uh, and, and loads, loads of bands and people like that. And I went to see them and everything. And never, like, I'm a massive Susie Sue and the Susie and the Banshees and uh, Kate Bush fan. Hell yeah. I never, ever want to meet them people. Yeah, it's funny. I'm I, and I'm amazed by it. I'm amazed by people who want to... Be, I remember like Neil Peart from Rush, before, I saw a very good interview about him before he died. And he said, I was a massive Who fan. I saw them dozens of times growing up. Never once did I ever want to go backstage and meet them. The concert was enough. Now, I'm definitely from that thing. I don't... But there is absolutely an unhealthy need to hold on to charisma at the charisma of someone else and feed from it and it's uh it's i don't know how some people like i wouldn't know how i wouldn't understand how someone like i don't know jay-z or uh, madonna or bono how those people deal with it because uh to even get it on a minor level it's horrible i couldn't right. imagine what it's like on a massive level yeah it's worrisome and i see it too much in a culture especially yeah. modern culture i see it too much people people subscribing full-heartedly to a thinker who you know and i say this about cops all the time and people you know talk shit it's like hey man at the end of the day they're humans you know <laughs> we are all fallible people you can't you know deify these people as either you know super villains or or uh uh you know monsters or it's like we all have that and it's just funny to me especially in you know, a modern a culture seeing that happen all the time. I think people are so quick to subscribe and they need to be shown or they want to be shown, I should say. And, you know, they, they latch on. It's a codependency thing. Yeah. And uh, I think when fame happens, there's like an, an amplification of all the things that exist in your daily life. So, you know, just it's it, it scaled up tremendously. So that's scaling up. And we live in an age where people are famous for nothing these days, you know, having a stupid YouTube channel that where they play video games or something, <laughs> some, you know, you know, the kind of people I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that amplification is, is, but I will say something. I have great respect for celebrities who are themselves and haven't changed. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> like they haven't changed. And they don't like someone like, say, Oliver Reed, you know, who died drunk doing river dance on a pub table in Malta <laughs> after he'd arm wrestled a whole British naval ship and bought them all drinks and paid the bar bill. I mean, he's and just probably, a hero. Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, he lived his life. But that, that's the same guy he was when he was 19. Right. And, it, you know, I can remember I worked in this, this, this quite posh uh, restaurant in Dublin when I was a kid. Uh, and I... Uh, just cleaning the, the counters and stuff. And hold on, my cat's got a poor ball. I don't know if you hear that. Cute. <laughs> but, uh, hold on, Benny. <laughs> He's okay. Okay, but, uh, and Pedro O'Toole was a regular customer, the actor. Oh, yeah. And I didn't really know who he was because I'd never seen Lawrence of Arabia or anything like that, you know? And uh, he was just a lovely, elderly, older, well, not elderly, but older gentleman. And uh, it wasn't the, like someone told me that, you know, that's Peter O'Toole, the famous actor. And well, what was he been in? I never saw Lawrence Array or anything like that. It was just, he was the same man. You know, there was no. He doesn't wear that bravado. Yes. He was very jovial and funny and jokey and stuff like that. And uh, 
yeah, I have tremendous respect for people who are the same when they're famous as they're when they're 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 not famous. I, I you find I think like you know yourself in the music industry, when I was playing in bands, you'd have someone who would think he was some kind of superstar and walking around because he played like, you know, in a few pubs or something like that. Uh, you get that a lot. I often found oh, yeah. that, that the phonies were very easily, that the, the fakes were very easily, and you see it in this scene as well. You know, you see it in this scene. It's the, the certain individuals say on my level within the alternative scene who act like their the shit don't stink and they're somehow, below, everyone's below them. And yet, like, I'm, I'm completely well aware that I'm basically nothing in the scheme of things, but they seem to think they're superstars. You right. get a lot of that kind of thing. And... Uh, yeah, I, 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 that seems to be a thing that's inherent in them. It doesn't develop later on. It, they were already like that long, even before they were famous. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, like I said, you see it all the time, especially within this ascension culture, within a culture. This, you know, I have all the, like, you know, give me money. I have all the, all the, uh, all the knowledge you need kind of thing. Yeah. And it's just funny to me because, you know, the more I get into this, and I say this all the time, the deeper I get, the less I fucking know. <laughs> you know? But that's the good thing. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's the beauty of it. Because when you think about it, there's almost like an attenuation towards zero at the end. Yes. It's like it, your life is like, the, is like the tarot, right? You're going from zero to zero, right? So you've reached, right. say, the midpoint of the Wheel of Fortune. That is like always know, the tower, always the tower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but you, you, I know less. I mean, you look at the, the you look at the tarot cards. The meaning the meanings diminish as it gets back towards the 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 fool again. You know, it's like the world. They all like oh, people often ask you, what does what does the world mean to you? What does the the universe mean to you? What you know the later cards, and it's like well, that's the whole point. There's not as much energy towards the end of your as you're reaching what, you know, Jung called individuation at the end of your cycle, right. as there was when you were, say, before you were, say, mid-30s or early 40s, you were like a, a dynamo of everything. Yeah. And that's, that's supposed to be like that. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, this, the more, it's, you know, it's like that song by the Fun Boy 3, the more that I see, the less I believe. That, that's life in many ways. Yeah. Uh, the lunatics are running the asylum. Yeah, that's a good one. But yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It. I wanted to talk to you too about maybe getting a little more like modern with it. I know that you had studied electronics and you had mentioned um, the like confluence of magic and electronics, which I always thought was interesting, especially after knowing like, you know, the Leary uh, Wilson Eight Circuit Brain kind of stuff. And, and I've, I've always been fascinated too. I was wondering if you could talk more about what you realize with electronics well electronics is uh, analog electronics is an extension right. of the nervous system when you sing through a microphone that's an extension of your vocal cords that have been charged to your nervous system when you pluck the strings of an electric guitar that's an extension of your nervous system yes so electronics analog electronics are an extension of your nervous system now when i first started really getting into serious looking at magic this would have been about when i was finished high school and started my first year of college and i was a uh, I was I was I had, a, I had a load of books on the, on the subject, making sigils, making talismans, and all this kind of thing. And at the same time, too, building electronic circuits in the lab in the college, the technical college. <clears throat> and in the technical college, uh, 
my circuits used to read differently on the oscill oscilloscope than everyone else's, even though I use the same circuit, the same, we'd be given, we'd be given a project to build a high pass filter or something like that. Uh, and the teacher said, well, you know, the, the lecturer said, was, was looking at him and stuff and go, well, you, you know, you did it correctly. You, you must have, you must have magical powers, Mr. Sherrod, or supernatural powers as a laugh. Uh, and he was right because my nervous system was directly affecting the tolerances of the components in the circuitry. Absolutely. 100%. And that was a, a thing that really struck me. It was one of these moments like, wow, that's why some people, when they play an A chord on a guitar, leave you flat but the same a chord played by say an amazing mu musician it just it has to, it, it just it's wow it's because they're they've really channeled their nervous system into it and so i became i've always very interested in the but not hugely in the connection between electronics and uh, supernatural magic whatever now then about 20 years ago I was <clears throat> I was visiting my parents and they went to bed. It was a Sunday night and I was just watching some late night documentary on the BBC. And the most amazing BBC documentary I've ever seen came on about 11.30. And it's never been repeated since. I cannot find it on the BBC player. It was about the early days of the development of radio and contacting the dead or spirits and a cold like a spirit box kind of situation everything everything yeah. like uh the, the, how crystals were first utilized the how so many as the early radio people and, including many of the people at the bbc were involved in freemasonry and occultic orders and yeah. they believed that they could they could contact other beings or spirits there's a common term back then in the 1920s sure through elect and all the developments in electronic electronics analog electronics in terms of things like radio and that kind of thing broadcast systems nearly always were rooted in the development of things like vacuum tubes valves which are very magical things when you think about it, how they work yeah. and later on transistors and so on now if you look at electronic circuitry and you look at sigils you see all the components right there the potentiometers the, the resistors and so right. that, le that led to me building electronic sigils by, in the old days, I used to, because I had access to copper etching, I would build, I would copper etch them and do, do things like put, put power supplies on them to see if I could charge the energy of the, say, this, the intention behind the oh, sigil. I love this so much. <laughs> this I is used like to, right up my alley. Well, I used yeah. to well, I used to open up my guitars and solder them between the yes. pickups and the, the and between the you know the you know the way I, like I had a Strat copy and you know the way it has the three the three switches in phase out of phase uh, right. and then the top and ones yeah. the top one was was wired through that. So it'd be little things like I'd be trying all the time, like, and I still, I, I'm still constantly doing things like that. I use, uh, I know when I create sigils, I use those electronic uh, conductive ink pens, uh, that kind of thing. And cool. uh, again, I try to see them in terms of a circuit. And my book sorcery goes into this a fair bit, but not hugely. And um, the, um, like for instance, uh, fixing old electronic things. I'm always 
like I, I fix all kinds of old electronic things from old cassette players, radio players, to old model trains. I fix the, I even rewind the motors on them. I just, I just think there's something magic about that. I used to work with a guy called David years ago, and he could fix anything. Now, when I say fix anything, someone could electronically, someone could bring in a Fender, no, sorry, a, a, a Marshall head, right? Mm-hmm. Bring it in saying, what's wrong with David? Oh, it's not working. There's no power on it. He would give it to me. I'd switch it on and, it'd be in, and power would come on, look in the back. I said, I don't know. I, I think the, the, the output transistors are gone. Right. So this kind of thing. This guy, David, could pick it up, switch it on, and it would work. Huh. It's like emitting an, an electrical... Kind he had, he was, yeah. a, he was attuned to the circuitry. It was almost like he could fix a solder joint by just holding the circuit board. I love this. solder job. You know, it reminds uh, me, there's a book I read about from Reed Gazala. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He, it's called Alien Instruments. And he famously would circuit bend. He's the one that kind of created the circuit bend instrument. And he yeah. would take old like play school toys and create these alien instruments out of everything. And he had that touch too. But yeah, sorry to interrupt. No, it's no problem. Because it's not per- because it's per- personal, right? Mm-hmm. I created a magical intention. And last this time last year, flying over Baghdad on my way to Dubai, I created it on a book um, and held it up over thinking of terms of Baghdad, Mesopotamia, and filling myself with all these things on the Emirates flight and held it up to the moon, which is over the desert, uh, high in the sky. And within six months, precisely what my intention was, which was, I can tell you, fairly impossible, came mm-hmm. to pass, came to pass. Wow. And I made the sigil, of course, from the, the, the ink in the uh, electronic conductive ink. Right. I mean, this is like, this is fascinating. So the last record I made used a lot of what I call audiomancy or like just yeah. sound sorcery. And it would be, so I'd take um, usually cassette recordings on an old Morantz and I would do these kind of, you know, kitchen sink percussion things to the tape um, in kind of a transcendental state. Then I would play it with like a guitar just drenched in sound transcendental states and i would i would absolutely like have kind of these fever dreams and it would help charge the tune and i'd create these things it was all analog though like all cassette all there's something about the organic nature yeah of, because of only it. It, it doesn't because digital only exists in this planet it doesn't it's not anywhere else in the universe yeah and i've, I've, seen, I've never, seen yeah our nervous system is analog yeah and i've seen people try to do you know like uh, midi files and they would create sigils within the MIDI files. But it seemed to forget that you need sort of a, a physical attribute to it. You know? I, have a friend, I have a friend in America called Jason, true social media friend. Uh-huh. And he, uh, he started doing things like meditations on taught tarot cards. Right. And he did one. It's on, if you go to Facebook and you see my, there's a fan page people have set up called uh, Throne of the Lightbringer, the Thomas Sheridan fan page. And okay. he did this beautiful, stunning, rich, uh, ethereal musical piece to the indolence card in the top deck, the cups. And uh, 
it's 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 he's, he's there and i mean we need more of that kind of thing yeah we, we need more of that i was you know it's funny it was maybe we could speak on this a little bit more too as we were talking about adversity i was going through a really really hectic time and it was the beginning of this this love uh situation for me so a lot of it was like this really empowered kind of love magic that i do with the music tara was involved i worked with santa muerte a bit uh who i grew up with and just this amalgamation of everything within the music of creating the music. And it's honestly like, um, I think the truest thing I've ever done, you know? And I just love hearing people like really focus that confluence between praxis and, and literal creation, especially when they're using, you know, uh, analog cassettes and, and recircuiting things. And like every little facet is intentful, you know? Yeah, I saw a few years ago, I don't even like Genesis, but it was a Peter Gabriel Genesis tribute band. And they even had like analog lights, uh, old lights and analog lamp, uh, amplifiers and uh, sound systems and the desk was, it was just fantastic. Just, you could definitely, and even though I'm not a Genesis fan, I could feel the vibe in a different kind of way. That's cool. I think, uh, I mean, if you look at, if you listen to albums that were, I mean, I can remember in the 80s, I don't know who it was, my girlfriend at the time and she came she she brought home it was either george michael album or someone like that the doobie brothers um we she played it and the media two was said to ourselves this sounds plastic yeah it was full digital production yeah i went to school for audio engineering yeah it's like i dropped out of school for audio engineering you know yeah, uh, well, I, well i dropped out as well because <laughs> i just wasn't i was desperately unhappy yeah doing, me too I, I, I didn't I didn't fit in I I was I just didn't like the college things and also it took something that I had before I went there and destroyed it yeah you know I, I guess I found that I don't need someone to uh kind of jurisdict what I'm willing to learn in a way and it it, it seemed a bit like uh not I don't want to say oppressive but that's the first word that came to mind you know yeah, that's what I felt. I felt, and I, I, yeah, I just, I did. I was one of those feelings, like being in a relationship where you know this isn't working. I shouldn't be here. I had that mm-hmm. vibe about. I had that vibe about it. Oh, and, I just, uh, I saw the trajectory too. I yeah. saw like what I'd have to do. The, you know, the the recertification of modern recording techniques and recording shit that I don't like. And you know, I was like, uh, I came here because I've always just kind of made music and recorded my own music you know since i was a kid and with me it was with the the, like, the digital electronics and uh, you know writing out the, this is a, a not and or and gate you know this kind of thing and yeah. it's like uh, i uh, you know i can handle the early you know the early microprocessors you know the, like the itt 323 uh because you can do you can make guitar effects pedals out of it and it's still just essentially analog right it's you know but then it just be, you know it just I didn't want to be involved with zeros and ones. And I think intrinsically, I knew there was a dark force behind it, even as a young kid. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about that because it does seem like, you know, the new warfare is obviously in the digital age. And I wonder how much of that intrinsically is just because it is digital. You know, I think there's something vapid yeah. about it. Yeah. There's a coldness there. If you look at us, if you look at a sine wave, right, from an analog a frequency, whatever, on an oscilloscope or something. There's a, a gentle decay, attack and a gentle decay. You pluck a note on a guitar, an attack and a decay, right? right. When you digitize that through, like, an, I don't know, 
even when you put like analog synths, old analog synths, and you look at them, and you and even the sine wave is the same. It's, it doesn't feel this. I can't explain. It, it doesn't feel the same. The the, the the sharpness of the of the of the wave of the block, you know, and yeah. it it creates a, it's almost like a psychopathic yes and no, right or wrong, mm. this kind of dark and cold, and the the beauty of our nervous system, of our psychology, of our state of being is these fluctuation of this interplay, this this wave. You, you know, you go down to the sea and you watch waves come in, and they don't come in as boxes that. Lego blocks, you know, right. and that's what they've done to set sound. They've made the waves into Lego blocks that they mm -hmm. fall over. Now you can compress all the digital the zeros and the ones to create what on the surface looks like a perfect sine wave. But if you zoom in on the oscilloscope and you go in deeper and deeper, you will eventually get to like a little kind of that little jagged pattern where no matter how deeper, like they're like fractals, when you go into the into the the amplitude of a an analog signal, there are waves upon waves upon waves. It never gets dead straight, and that to me is the difference. That at the fundamental base level, there is a a plasticity mm -hmm. to the analog signal, where there's a rigidity to the digital signal, and that's why I think it. Mess I mean, I I you know this I. Is a good example. I made a video on my Beyond Room 313 channel recently about uh, analog sorcery. And I stated there was much more success with electronic voice phenomena that people use, the, the old cassette tapes, than you get right. with these digital recorders. Yeah, I actually, that I, that was one of my favorite videos I've, I've watched yeah. of yours. Yeah. And that's true. That's true. I mean, I've done, I've been fascinated by EVP and also television, right? You know, this is probably a good time to contact entities on the television. If you have an old analog TV, because there's no terrestrial signals out there right. anymore. You hook it up to an antenna, switch it on and just move up and down the frequencies. And you might get something really strange, which I have. I have a little portable Sony, beautiful little thing, portable old analog black and white TV. Mm -hmm. And I put my headphones into that. And I can tell you, I know you can say, okay, it's, it's something bouncing from somewhere. It's a, no, it's not. There's other things going on. It's not, I just have the, the means to record on this little thing. But yeah, I mean, it's now. See, this is this is this is not a weird one. It's like as we become more di digital, do we become less spiritual? Yeah, I was gonna say there's like a preternatural warmth with analog stuff mm -hmm. that it's obviously missing. But like maybe people can equate that to some sort of soul or you know analogy of that. Well, we get digital missing. people now. They, 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 there's no. I mean, right. there, was an art, there was an article in a New Scientist not too long ago about this, that there was basically scientists that discovered that there's, there's large numbers of human beings, large percentage of human beings that do not have an inner world. Right. And it, the guy posted this to this article, the scientist, however, whatever, posted this to his Twitter feed. And there was actual comments by people saying, you mean you guys hear your own voice in your head when you're thinking something out it was hmm. like what these, my god what this is really true there are like there literally are non-player characters in real life that simply react to impulses desires wants and needs 
yeah rather it absolutely than, affect the trajectory of the physical world yeah and that happened to me when i was i was i was years ago i was talking to this this, this woman i work with and she says to me you think don't you what i think <laughs> and i said what do you mean i think you you, you make you 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 do things in your head and then they talk about them so that they do exist there's like robots out flesh robots like trying to de- to discover consciousness that's funny or or or, or an internal world intrigued world. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's kind of horrifying terrifying um, especially if they get into power but then you have to think, you look at things like totalitarian regimes that's exactly what happens yeah uh, my father is like pretty involved in the transhumanist party but i think one of the big things that he doesn't agree with is the accentuation of life he doesn't care about living forever and i think a lot of the transhumanist party and this like these digital you know uh, uh soldiers in that kind of war futuristic war you know are, are really trying to extenuate life and I, i've always appreciated that with him is that no he's just trying to he's really into the idea of uh you know a con of of, of a man-made thing kind of reaching consciousness in a sort of way but also wants it to expire you know <laughs> yeah i've no problem with that i mean from a it, it's interesting from that point of view the right. transhumanists are definitely divided into two fields one who are <laughs> who are, want to create artificial humanity because they've never been human themselves yeah. and then there's other ones who probably see the health or social benefits of it who are driven by things like helping people who are severely disabled and things like that it's definitely i mean i go on those transhumanist sites and it's 50% assholes and 50% really decent people. That's right. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's true for anything. I mean, especially digitally. And it's funny, we're talking about this, especially, you know, uh, uh, within magic circles and a culture, I think there's this need to be more naturalistic. And I think people are really striving towards that. Maybe that's why they're more attuned to quote unquote, witchcraft or folk magic or any of this is because, you know, I think there's this inherent need to push against needing to be digital all the time yeah and the, it's a paganism thing again as well right I mean, uh, if you look at sort of like traditional ceremonial magic it's very rooted in biblical stuff really isn't it you know even like yeah. even Thelema, well Thelema has a fair amount of like yoga and stuff like that but uh, the golden dawn it's all like biblical characters now i know that ultimately they're just power sources and archetypes but at the end, it's, it's just interesting again how I mean, I see OTO people today, and I'm not putting it down. I'm don't don't so don't don't get upset. <laughs> but I've got you. Don't seem as I don't know. You remind me of those cosplay druids you get in England who walk around like Anglican bishops. It's not sincere or something. I don't know yeah. what it is. And um, maybe you should give you have a go with some paganism or something. Maybe it's maybe you're hanging on to a foundation that no longer needs to exist or is obsolete it reminds me of austin Oswald's fair talking about uh crowley acting invisible in a robe it's like everyone can fucking see you <laughs> he yeah he was spare was a genius spare, spare yeah. was like a punk rocker but that was like uh 50 years before punk rock yeah no i i enjoy him immensely you know we were talking yeah. earlier about like i i don't have that deification i i talked to friends who uh, allow themselves to kind of be enamored with a person in the magical realm to kind of direct them where next to kind of go and and really enjoy that you know 
uh, reverence to a practitioner. And I have that reverence, but I also have that like enjoyment that, you know, he was human. As human yeah, as I, I wouldn't use a word instead of reverence. I'd use is like uh, respect. Respect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I totally respect Crowley. I totally respect them all. Really, they've all done their part. Uh, it, it, I mean, uh, that's what it is. It doesn't mean you have to like uh, deify them. And that's that's one of the big problems with Thelema and the OTO is the deification of Crowley. It's like right. It's just too much. It's just. Uh, you know, I read right. something the other day that really sparked some intrigue for me was, you know, Crowley was an addict through and through. A magician yeah. has a little bit more control than that. Like, I, it's just some fleeting comment, but I kind of took that to heart. I was like, yeah, you know, that's that's true. I mean, there. Well, a know. lot of it. You know, William William S. Burroughs was oh, the yeah. one addict all his life, but. The, he, this and he had thing. control over it, though. <laughs> well, that's that's the thing. People, people say people automatically assume that someone who's an addict has no control over it. Right. Uh, just like the mental illness thing, people assume that they're always irrational. You know, we're all daylight atheists, and we're all like, uh, we're all a bit nuts when no one's looking. Right. But uh, the thing is, it's control. And you know, I've when I hear people say, "Oh, he was Crowley was just a you know just this drug addict who." You know, and I, and, I, and I looked deeply into it. Well, like me, he was an asthmatic. And that was the way he dealt. You know, you know, I've used heroin, not injecting it, smoking it to deal with my asthma in the past. Sure. And yeah. it, it worked phenomenal. Incredible. No, I've Lowers never been the given, breath. Yeah. It just, it was like a pure clean, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so that was what he did in his day. So a lot of it was to do with his health issues. Yeah. I and, mean, I think, yeah, people read, you know, Diary of a Drug Addict and, you know. They well, Crowley was also like a the first edge lord. He was the first troll. Yeah, that's true. And he, he, you know, he was he was a you know he he built his charisma through notoriety and through uh, is you know, incendiary is the word he used. And right. that was a, that doesn't necessarily mean that's true, any more than doesn't necessarily mean it's bad either. You know. No, I mean like Johnny Rotten when I was a little kid, my parents and oh adults used to talk about him like he was the devil. John one of the brilliant men. Yeah, one John of is one of the man. most decent, laid-back, easygoing, nice men you could ever meet. Yeah, John Lydon's the coolest. Yeah, he's just a lovely man. He's a kind, yeah. lovely man. But he was the devil. He he was the devil. He was, and, and that was the note the building the charisma, building the charm. See, when I when I when I hear these public things about this guy's a monster, this guy's an asshole, or something like that, mm-hmm. I say to myself, how much is that real, and how much is that is cultivated? Like the like the end the the the, the 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 you know the professional wrestlers who have an act, right? You know, the heel, yeah, 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 exactly. The the the, the persona. How much of that is true? Uh, but you know, this guy, you know, these people are total assholes, and you, they go home and they're probably like lovely to their friends and family, right? And they're necessary too. I would, yeah, I would argue. I mean, and, and there's an element of the defense to it as well. It's a defense mechanism. It's a shield of armor. Uh, I use a, you know, every good magician or occultist has to have a, a shield to protect themselves. Right. Mine is satire and comedy. I'm good at it. I'm, I know I'm a funny bastard. Yeah. And I use it as a way of people not quite able to put their finger upon me. And I learned that at a very early age in school that I was, would not be beat up by the thugs in the school or in the neighborhood. Because I could tell jokes and I was funny. 
And yeah. that has served me very, very well all through my life. I'd argue that I've learned more from, you know, Lenny Bruce and George Carlin yep. than I have from the likes of, you know, maybe even Crowley. Uh, yeah, many of them, many of them are, are true, are true shamans. Yeah. Yeah, especially Bill Hicks. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I appreciate that. Um, I think humor is clutch. I think it's important. And I think it's important to laugh at yourself when it comes to all this major, heavy, you know, <laughs> occult experience. Oh, absolutely. And like Crowley even said himself, the one element missing from the Western occultic tradition, probably since the classical age, I'm sure there was lots of satire and comedies in Roman and Greek, greco Roman and Celtic magic, was the, the humor thing that was definitely had been left out of the equation. Well, I find I found a lot of Crowley stuff that I, very funny, and I would have loved to meet him because I bet he, was, he would have been a, a real character to hang out with, very, very witty and clever. He had that almost Oscar Wilde yeah. sense of wit. You know, like when, they, he was, when they, the guy from the Daily Express asked him, what happened to your shamans? He said, I ate them. Or, or to your <laughs> Sherpas, what happened to them? I ate them. Now, he knew that was going to be on the front page of the Daily Express a week later, a few days later. But he also knew that anyone with intelligence would know he was, take, he was having a laugh. And only the most base people of, should we say, lesser consciousness would take it seriously. I like that. It's almost like a weird psychic filter. He was, he was filtering out. Big time. You know? Yeah. yeah and that's, I agree. I mean, and that's why every, everyone has, you know, some people do, I mean, do dress up outrageously and outlandish to protect themselves. It's just some people are human dazzle ships. My human dazzle ship is my satire and my comedy. Yeah. I really like that point that, you know, kind of directing where the ire of the public will go, mm. you know, that's, that's magic. No way. And I think that's a great place to probably end this fantastic chat with you, Thomas. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Thanks very much for having me yeah, on. Yeah, this was great. I hope we chat more soon. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, give me a shout in a few months or something. If you, you and That was good. I enjoyed that. And thanks for being so candid about your your mental health issues and stuff like that. Oh, of course. I think that's, you know, that's part of my process too, is to kind of just be real and honest about it. I think a lot of times you find these perfect specimens talking about their powers, you know, and I don't think that's the case. No, I think the real human decency is to talk about like everything and try and talk it out. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, and there's a real magical power in that as well. There's almost like a transcendental, it's almost like a consciousness yoga. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Something that only gets better, right? Brilliant. So give me a give me a shout when you have to set it and up, and I will do the usual thing and share it around. And like I said, give me a shout when you you want to have another chat. I'm very easy to find. I'm generally busy during the summer going around visiting megaliths and ancient sites, but until then, I'm easy to get. Well, maybe you could just mention real quick if you have anything coming up that people should look out for. Uh, what do I have coming up? I'm working on a book of uh, about H.P. Lovecraft and. It's it's basically a fleshed out version of the documentary I wrote called, I produced and created called Libra Providence. Right. Uh, a fleshed out version of that. And um, the Iona Cthulhu, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was supposed to bang that thing out fast, but now I'm sort of like, it's it's actually becoming very beautiful. It's becoming like a kind of a poetic, it's, had a poet, it's, it's developing it's a poetic cadence of its own. So I just want to let that flow out and let's see how long that takes rather yeah. than like just rushing it. 
And uh, yeah, I'm going to be doing some traveling around the world and visiting megalithic sites. Beyond Room 313 is my main sort of like respectable channel. <laughs> uh, Thomas Sheridan uh, Arts on YouTube is where I'll do all the funny stuff or things like that. Yeah. And uh, where I do my vlogs is Open Source Occult TV. My website is www.mossuponstones.com. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm having a great time at the moment, um, meeting an all, a lot of very nice people. And uh, I'm just waiting for this bloody winter to end. It's been a very a crappy winter. But uh, yeah, I mean, the journey continues. That's all I can say. Well, it was great to meet you formally. And I'm really excited about talking to you when, especially when the Lovecraft books com- comes out, because I know you've got a lot of inherent uh you know, kind of fascination with it. So yeah, that's that's a, that's a real passion for me. Yeah, that that and ancient sites, and and the two of them, funny enough, go together. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it is. Well, thank uh, you so the, much. The magical journey. Okay, yeah. all the best, Pete. <laughs> take, take care. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon.